This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. As a background to my talk today, Perspectives on the Future of Fossil-Based Human Origins Research, I want to tell you that I'm a paleoanthropologist who's been conducting field research for the last 30 years in one of the remotest areas of the world, and collecting fossils of our ancient ancestors. With this fieldwork experience, I wanted to share with you some perspectives, um, my hopes and concerns, of course, on the future of fossil-based human origins research. Today, we have thousands of fossils representing more than 20 early human ancestor species. All of the ancestor species older than 2 million years were found in Africa. So when we go back in history, remember what Charles Darwin predicted in 1871 in his book, The Descent of Man, where he said the last shared ancestor of apes and humans lived in tropical Africa. Now at that time, he didn't have any fossils in hand to investigate, but he was, he was right, and his prediction came to be realized with the discovery of the tongue child in 1924, which is about 43 years after he died. So after the first discovery from South Africa of the tongue child, so many more discoveries were made in so many um, cave sites within South Africa, and the search for early human ancestor fossils continued uh, further north to Eastern Africa, and uh, a number of significant discoveries were made in the 1960s and 1970s in Tanzania, Kenya, and um, Ethiopia. So when we look at the distribution of paleontological sites in Africa today, this is what it looks like. As you see on the map, there are sites in Southern Africa, which has been known since the 1920s. Uh, and then you have a group of sites in Eastern Africa, which, is, which, is, which have been known since the 1950s and 1960s. So historically, most of these Eastern African sites have been investigated since the early 1960s, and a number of fossils that are really critical in our understanding of uh, human evolution has been found from, from the sites. But when we look at how many of those sites were actually discovered since 2000, there are only a few. And the reason why I mentioned that is because that is directly relevant to my, my talk today. So... The fossil record that was available until the 1980s indicated the presence of at least 10 or so species, early human ancestor species, including Lucy species Australopithecus afrensis, which was thought to be the earliest human ancestor at 3 million years ago. And in terms of the phylogenetic relationships, Australopithecus afrensis stood as the ancestor of all the human lineages one that led to the genus Homo, and the other one that led to what we call the robust lineage. And this was as simple as what we could see in the fossil record uh, until the 1980s. So with only 10 species knowing the fossil record, our evolutionary history was not really that complicated. But what we see in the 1990s and early 2000, which by the way, are usually referred to as golden decades of paleoanthropology, we see a number of new human ancestor species discovered, uh, both from old sites and also new sites. 
almost doubling the number of uh, known species in the fossil record. Not only that, but we also have the earliest record of human ancestors pushed all the way back to more than six million years ago. So this time, our evolutionary history became much more complicated. So in addition to all these new discoveries, we also see advances in analytical methods. 3D imaging became part and parcel of paleontological studies. Various modelings and sophisticated quantitative methods with advances in genetics and also uh, advances in geospatial sciences really helped paleontology to make significant discoveries, new ideas, and test uh, existing hypotheses with all these new um, analytical methods. But the problem is, all of these advances, even though they've helped us generate more data and provided us with access to more information that, than, that we wouldn't have been able to see with our naked eyes, none of these advances helped us increase the actual fossil sample sizes or fill the temporal gaps that are apparent in the fossil record. So this is where I really want to emphasize, particularly in terms of what what does finding new sites mean uh, in terms of our understanding of understanding of the, our evolutionary history? Now, the Alpha region of Ethiopia has a unique place in paleoanthropology. Uh, in this region, we have ancient fossiliferous deposits that pretty much document um, the last six million years of our evolutionary history. And Middle Awash that you see at the bottom here um, is one example in this regard, where we have a sequence of deposits that sample the last 6 million years. But we will see that there are like some interruptions in the sequence, and without filling those interruptions, those temporal gaps, uh, it would be very difficult to really understand the entire history of our evolution. So paleoanthropologists have been investigating some, some of the sites since the early 1970s, um, old sites and also looking for new sites. So we know that Middle Awash, Gona, and Harar have been investigated since the 1970s, and they've produced hundreds of early hominid fossils and also associated vertebrate fossils that tell us about the environment in which these early human ancestors lived. But there are still some gaps in the fossil record that we really want to find by locating new sites because it's less likely that we will have those gaps filled from the existing sites, especially when we know that paleoanthropologists have been working at the sites for more than 50 years. So finding new sites, like one example that I can mention to you is Lady Gararu. Lady Gararu is a site that was discovered after 2000. And now we have the earliest fossil evidence of the genus Homo, which is our genus, from 2.8 million years ago. Previously, we thought that the earliest, human, the, the earliest record of Homo is about 2.5, 2.4 million years ago. So that's, that's because of the discovery of a new site that we now know that the genus Homo appeared in the fossil record much earlier than previously thought. Another new site that I would like to talk about is Ranzumile, which is where, what, where I'm going to spend more time because that's the site that I've been working at for the last uh, 15 years. So for almost... 15 years, I've been participating with the Middle Ash Project as a member, uh, and during those years, I have come to understand the geological history of Middle Awash, uh, the 
temporal gaps that are missing within the six, almost six million years record of our evolutionary history at Middle Awash. And it's, it's always been my interest to actually see, uh, like look for new sites where we can actually fill some of those gaps that we have in beautiful sequences like in the Middle Awash. But of course, I also wanted to have a site where I can work for, you know, as, as a career in, in the future. And that's when I decided to do some survey and exploration in the northern part of the Afar Rift. And I spent about two years uh, before I finally located uh, Oranzumile. So those two sites are probably two of the most significant new sites that have been added to the older sites within the Afar Rift system. And Oranzumile um, is has a lot of surprises in terms of how we understand our evolutionary history, particularly during the middle Pliocene between four and three million years ago. And because of the discovery of this new site, we added more than 200 fossil specimens of early human ancestors, ranging in age from 3.8 all the way to 3.2 million years ago. Although most of these are isolated teeth, uh, we have a cranium that you see on the screen, which is about 3.8 million years old. We have numerous maxillae, the upper jaw and lower jaw, mandibles, postcrania, and a partial skeleton, and including this wonderful uh, partial foot that you see here called the Bortelli foot. Now, each of these discoveries have their own impact on how we understand our evolutionary history. So the work that we have done so far at, um, at Oranzumile shows us that there were at least four different species identified from the sequences that are sampled by almost 800,000 years. One is Australopithecus anamensis, which has been known from Kenya and Ethiopia, um, Middle Awash, um, but it was known only up until 3.9 million years ago. So its discovery at Wanazumila at 3.8 million years ago tells us that anamensis lived longer than previously thought. We have a partial foot from Oranzumile. That is really interesting because it shows opposable big toe at 3.4 million years ago, a time when the famous Australopithecus afrensis was roaming, you know, the deserts of, well, not deserts, but the, the, the lands in the Afar region. And here we have a species that had kept its opposable big toe and living at the same time in close geographic proximity. Another surprise that we have from Oranzumile is this new species called Australopithecus de Ramada, which is only known from Oranzumile so far. And then we also have a partial skeleton of Australopithecus afrensis from 3.6 million years ago. Now, Australopithecus afrensis is really well known from Hadar, a site about 30 miles to the south. What is really important about this partial skeleton is that it provided us with a lot more information about some aspects of the biology of and anatomy of Australopithecus afrensis, particularly in the areas of the shoulder girdle and also the rib cage. So this spec this specimen helped us understand uh, better in terms of some of the paleobiology of Australopithecus afrensis. So when we look at the combined um, evidence, fossil evidence from Oranzumile, what we realize is we're talking about how do we feel those missing stratigraphic gaps that we have in the fossil record. And Waranzabile, one of the things that it did was to fill one of these gaps that existed between 3.6 and 3.9 million years ago. 
So this, is, this was one of the temporal gaps we had in the fossil record and the discoveries from Moran Zemile uh, filled that gap. So this is really important. The second thing is how the partial skeleton of Australopithecus afarensis actually um, helped us better understand some of the paleobiology of Australopithecus afarensis. And it also happens to be the oldest partial skeleton of an adult individual of Australopithecus afarensis at 3.6 million years ago. From Oranzo Mille, we also have this new species, Australopithecus de Ramada, which happens to overlap in time with the well-known Australopithecus afarensis, which is well sampled at Harar, but we also have a good sequence of for the presence of Australopithecus afarensis at Oranzo Mille. So this new addition is also something that we know because of the discovery of this new site that resulted from survey and exploration in early 2000. But what was really surprising in terms of discoveries from Moranzumile was this partial foot, which again temporarily overlaps with what we have identified as Australopithecus de Ramada and also Australopithecus afarensis. Now, at this time, geological time, about 3.4, 3.5 million years ago, Australopithecus afarensis was the most dominant species. And we wouldn't have expected in a million years that we will find a hominin with a pose of a big toe at this time. So here is another surprise that finding new sites and finding new fossils brings about. So the Bortelli partial foot is really significant because some hominid species retained opposable big toe as late as 3.4 million years ago. And it also tells us that there were multiple modes of bipedal locomotion, locomotor adaptations among mid-Pliocene hominids. These are new revelations that we see from Oranzo Mille. But in addition to increasing the sample size, filling some of the temporal gaps that we have, they also raise some interesting questions in terms of how these early human ancestors coexisted. For example, how did related hominid taxa manage to coexist in close geographic proximity at Warren's Emile, not at nearby Hadar? Because at Hadar, we have only one species, which is uh, Australopithecus afarensis. But at Warren's Emile, we have a species represented by the Bortelli foot, uh, another species, Australopithecus de Ramada, and we also have Australopithecus afarensis. So we start hypothesizing in terms of what are the ways that this hominids could have coexisted and we can talk about adaptive radiation. We can talk about how they probably partitioned the habitat and whether they, they had some differences in foraging strategy and differences in locomotor adaptation and so forth. So this new site opened up not only new questions that we need to address, but also uh, helped us fill some of the gaps that were apparent in the fossil record. And also... Another question that comes up from these discoveries is like, which species could be the best candidate for the ancestry to the genus Homo, right? So far, Australopithecus afarensis has always been considered as the ancestor of all species that came after 3 million years. But now that we have multiple species living at the same time with Australopithecus afarensis, we ask this question, then who is the ancestor of the genus Homo? So this is really important discovery. And I mean, after this, I don't think there is any doubt why continued fieldwork research is really important and finding new sites is really important. But you notice that every publication that comes on research in, on human origins will always end the research paper with more fossils are needed, right? So yes, more fossils are needed because we, we don't have enough sample 
for each hominid species that we have in the fossil record. And we also know that there are so many questions that remain to be answered, that, that remain unanswered, and we need answers for those questions. And the only way we can answer those questions is by increasing the sample size, by sampling larger populations of this early human ancestors. And the only way we can do that is by going out to the field and recovering uh, more fossils. There are also a number of unsampled time periods in the fossil record, and we need to fill those gaps, like what we did with the 3.6 to 3.9 million year gap that was filled by discoveries at Oranza Mille. And there is also a need for refining the geological sequences in some of these uh, sites, because we have very good dates for certain horizons, but some of the horizons have a, a, a deep time represented between those uh, dated horizons, and we need to refine the stratigraphy accordingly, and that can only be done by going out to the field and doing um, field research. And of course, field research is really important for uh, students. Um, it gives them the opportunity for hands-on experience. And this is part of, I think this, is, this should be part of what they're trained for, like in terms of field work and how it's done. So there are so many advantages for going back to the field, finding more fossils, and also locating new sites that uh, will help us better understand our evolutionary history. So when I consider all the trends that we're seeing today, um, particularly since uh, 2010, we, we, we see that there is this tendency in terms of decline in survey and exploration to locate new paleontological sites. Now, if we don't continue surveying and exploring for new sites, we're not going to be able to um, document some of these um, missing gaps in the fossil record. So the second one is we also see decline in funding for field-based human origins research, especially after 2010. There was an increase in, in, in the early 2000s or late 1990s, and as a result, you've seen how many specimens, how many fossil hominids were identified in the 1990s and early 2000s. So that was a really a good trend, but since after 2010, we see some decline in terms of funding for field-based uh, human origins research. And I also see that training of undergraduate students in the field seems to be declining, uh, and that's not a good sign um, like the other ones that I mentioned earlier. So this is also something that we need to think about. So how can we move forward in human origins research? As we know, there is there is a um, serious problem in terms of like what the trends are, what the current trends are. So the first thing is, I think there should be a consensus among all stakeholders that human origins research cannot happen without the fossils that come from fieldwork. By stakeholders, I'm referring to all paleontologists, students, granting agencies, private and federal granting agencies, all of this are included as you know, stakeholders. So this is something that we have to really understand that this is a critical part of human origins research. I also think that we, there is a need to invest in survey and exploration to locate new fossiliferous sites. And of course, we know the logistical challenges uh, and how expensive it is to actually go out and survey and explore to find new localities. But I think the fact that we now have much sophisticated geospatial sciences, we can really incorporate new approaches from those sciences and um, kind of make the challenges much, much uh, smaller. 
And we also um, need to, as paleo anthropologists, we need to um, consider fieldwork as a major component of their students' training. Now, as a graduate student, I, I spent most of my time in the field, and honestly, everything that I know about faunal assemblages, everything that I know about geology, all of it was what I learned in the field, not in a classroom situation. So I believe that having graduate students trained in the field not only helps them understand fieldwork methodology, but also helps them become holistic, uh, all-around paleoanthropologists who understand the the, uh, the context of this early homeless that we are also finding. So without continued fieldwork and recovery of more fossils, um, without filling the temporal gaps in the fossil record, without refining the edges of the fossils we currently have in hand, I don't think we can fully understand our evolutionary history and how we became who we are today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation uh, for this symposium. Today, I'm going to talk about using stem cells to study human origins. So we started this work by asking a question, how is the human brain distinct from other primates? And uh, we know that human brains have increased in, uh, neurons have increased in dritic branching. We know that there is increased spine density on the neurons, there is enlarged cortex, and we also know that there is a delayed maturation of neurons in human brains. And that delayed maturation is also called uh, neoteny. So we have observed neoteny in cortical growth, cell cycle length, and dendritic spine maturation, amongst other things. So we wanted to look at systems to uh, understand this uh, aspect of this delayed protracted neuronal maturation in humans. And there are different systems in which you can look at that uh, from looking at the DNA to postmortem brain tissues to fossil evidence and to archaeological evidence, uh, we uh, wanted to focus on another system uh, where in, in which we use live cells uh, from non-human primates and humans to look at comparative uh, experiments so we can look, we can test and validate some hypotheses regarding neuronal maturation. So stem cells can differentiate into neurons and we can look at them comparatively between humans and non-human primates and see what are the changes or the differences between cells differentiating. So the, for this to be a, a valid system, we, want, we need to know if there are differences that are detectable at the cellular level uh, that will be relevant to understanding changes in brain size or neuronal maturation in humans. Are there uh, changes that we can identify in the cell that would be relevant for uh, the individual? And early on, we uh, to, to generate the resources for this work, we uh, used induced pluripotent stem cells. We generated induced pluripotent stem cells from chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, which are um, our closest living relatives. And we also show that cells from uh, non-human primates, from those apes, were able to differentiate in vitro from the induced prepotent stem cells. And uh, they 
expressed neuronal markers that were typical from the de de developmental stage, such as the ones indicated here, MAP2, T2, and synapsin, and they also expressed cortical markers. So we were able to generate cortical-like neurons in culture from non-human primates. So a question we had is, and it's one way that we could look at neuronal maturation from this, uh, starting from the stem cells, was to look at neuronal activity. So to detect neuronal activity from the different species comparatively, we use the system called multi-electrode array platform. So that system allows us to detect extracellular voltage changes that are associated with electrical events. Here shown by uh, those blinking dots. So those are neurons that are firing uh, um, action potentials. So our first uh, analysis showed that when we look at earlier during development, humans uh, are uh, generate a certain uh, amount of activity and every trace here corresponds to a an activity of a neuron. So that's when a neuron fire, that's why we see a trace. And we compare that to chimpanzees and bonobos. And initially what we see is chimpanzees and bonobos here in red uh, are uh, differentiating more. Um, they were quicker at differentiation compared to human neurons. But later on during differentiation, and that's when you look at six weeks now of an neuronal differentiation, we those same neurons are now firing more rapidly. So they were differentiating more. Uh, they were more differentiated, firing more action potentials and more mature compared to chimpanzees and bonobo. But we notice that delayed maturation uh, that uh, uh, we also uh, call the protracted development or neoteny in human neurons cultured in a dish. So now we have a system in which we can study neoteny in the dish. So we then ask the question, what are the genetic drivers for neoteny? So what is, can we identify those, uh, uh, the genetic drivers that would allow for this delay of human neuronal maturation? And there are different um, drivers potentially different genetic drivers. And one of them will be gene duplications. And there are a number of studies uh, over the years that have shown that humans have uh, uh, unique uh, gene duplications that could be uh, somewhat responsible for some of the genetic drivers for human neoteny. And other genetic uh, candidates for genetic drivers for, of human neoteny could be related to gene regulation. So transcription uh, factors uh, bind to specific sites in human uh, genes, and those sites could be evolving different in humans compared to non-human primates. So you still have the same transcription factor, but the binding sites will be different. So we could potentially detect that by uh, uh, looking at uh, differential expression profiles. So uh, the, there is evidence that there is positive selection of transcription factor binding sites, and that's indicated uh, in, in this paper. So that suggests that the transcription factor binding sites may be evolving new functions in humans. You can still use the same transcription factor, but the binding sites in the DNA might be different. So with that in mind, we, we uh, ask the question if changes in gene regulation in humans compared to non-human primates uh, could be a component of human neuronal neoteny. And for that, we looked at differential gene expression in humans compared to non-human primates. And here uh, we used uh, a system that we differentiated 
uh, the industry potents themselves that we had from humans, bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, and visas. And we differentiated them uh, in neuroprogenitors, here, here uh, uh, called N NPCs. Uh, and we also differentiated them further into neurons at different times uh, during differentiation. Uh, um, we looked at two, four, six, and eight weeks. And then we looked at RNA uh, profiles. So what RNA uh, those cells were producing at those different times during development. So our first uh, uh, question was, uh, are the, the neuronal progenitors transitioning to neurons in a conserved way? So we are we generating uh, uh, human, gorilla, chimp, bonobo, uh, rhesus neurons in the same way? And it turns uh, out that all species do transition similarly from neuroprogenitors to neurons. And we can see uh, um, evidence for uh, examples of genes here, for instance, uh, CDK1, which is a gene related to progenitors. So when you compare a progenitor, which is a neuronal progenitor that is still dividing, you see that gene that is more upregulated and it downsregulated uh, similarly to all species during differentiation when we're looking at neurons. A similar thing happens to synapsin 1, but on the opposite side. So synapsin 1 is a typical uh, gene expressed in neurons. Uh, so we will see it uh, more uh, less expressed in uh, neuroprogenitor cells, but when, when you're differentiating two neurons, uh, the expression of synapsin grows. And that's comparable between all species. So we are able to generate uh, neurons and, and uh, the, the transitions are very comparable between human and non-human primates. Also, um, the, 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 spa the, spatial, the spatial enrichment of the genes in neuroprogenitors and in neurons is very comparable. So that's telling us that we can make neurons from uh, human and non-human primates in very similar ways. But yet, there are some differences. So what are the differences? So one of the uh, differences and a way in which we can look at those differences is by doing an analysis called the principal component analysis using the full transcriptome. And when we do that, so that allows us, this type of analysis allows us to um, summarize a lot of uh, data from one cell line and reduce it to one dot. So for instance, the triangle here will indicate this, uh, the whole transcriptome of that one cell line. And in that way, we're able to compare a lot of data and, uh, in, and summarize it in a figure. So what this figure is showing us is when you look at, when you compare the full transcriptome from uh, all the species that we uh, tested, uh, the transcriptome recapitulates phylogeny. And that means uh, human is uh, clustering, all the humans are clustering together. The chimpanzees and the bonobos are clustering together, followed by the gorillas and the rhesus is another group. So that's uh, also uh, important to us. That also means that our in our cellular system is representing to some extent what's happening in, to the species, to the living species. So what we did then is uh, we performed a weighted correlation network analysis, which is another type of analysis that will identify the top correlated upregulated genes in human-specific networks. So here we're looking for things that are human-specific, for, for genes that are uh, uh, human-specific and are upregulated in humans. So 
there are a number of genes that are identified, but one of our top uh, upregulated genes is called GATA3. And we uh, can see here in more detail that over differentiation time, so zero will be the progenitor, and then we have two, four, six, and eight weeks, GATA3 goes up during the earlier uh, stages of differentiation in humans, so that's a green uh, uh, trace here, and it stays up uh, over the course of the differentiation compared to the other non-human primates. So we see in this analysis that GATA3 is correlated with genes that are uniquely regulated in humans by looking at the transcriptome. Um, so we, we got uh, very excited when we saw GATA3 as an, one of our top regulators because that manuscript that I showed you before, uh, published a number of years ago now in Nature Genetics, uh, also showed that GATA3 was one of their top uh, uh, transcription factors wh whose the binding sites have show were showing uh, uh, the strongest evidence for positive selection. So we confirmed, we wanted to confirm that GATA3 expression was increased. So we confirmed that uh, increased in expression of the GATA3 protein in, in human cells compared to non-human cells, both chimp, bonobo, gorilla, and rhesus, um, didn't express GATA3. And we also showed that uh, in postmortem brain using uh, Allen Brain Atlas, we showed that uh, GATA3 uh, we pulled the data showing that uh, humans have increased expression of uh, GATA3 compared to, to rhesus. So both uh, in on neurons that we were culturing the dish as well as in brains, postmortem brains, GATA3 was upregulated in human cells. So we noticed that GATA3 is increased in human in vitro and in prenatal brain. Now we wanted to know, um, it's a so since GATA3 is a, uh, we are proposing that it's a human specific uh, uh, regulator uh, of um, certain um, sequences in the genome, uh, one way in which we can uh, look at what GATA3, uh, which genes GATA3 is binding is to use a technique called uh, chromatin immunoprecipitation followed by sequencing. So that technique allows us to uh, look at which uh, genes, uh, areas, which sequences in the genome, the, the transcription factor of choice, which in this case is GATA3, which areas GATA3 is actually binding to in the genome. So we, when we do that in our cell lines, we notice that there was an enrichment of GATA3 on promoter regions and five prime nuclei of genes, which is something that would be expected as a characteristic of a transcription factor. And we notice a number of genes, and here is an example of a gene called NOTCH2NL that has enrichment of GATA3 signal at the 5' UTR. Additionally, we notice that there was a spatial enrichment of GATA3-bound genes on the area of a, a called subventricular zone when you looked at 15 uh, postconceptional weak-old postmortem human brain, meaning that uh, GATA3-bound uh, genes are also enriched in uh, uh, that area where neurons are, um, newborn neurons are differentiating into, uh, migrating and differentiating into uh, more mature neurons. Uh, additionally, we noticed that the binding sites we detected using that uh, uh, technique called chromatin immunoprecipitation, uh, followed by sequencing, those sites uh, were located uh, in areas in the neurons, and they are under positive selection in humans. We use that same algorithm that uh, Arbiza et al. in nature genetic used in the past. So with that uh, uh, experiment, we concluded that GATA3 binds to unique sites in human neurons that are under positive selection. We wanted to know what knockdown of GATA3 would 
would do. Uh, and we wanted to ask the question if it would be inhibiting human-specific expression. So we generated cell lines that were using uh, SH RNA again against GATA3. We decreased the expression, we're able to decrease the expression of GATA3. And we wanted to, uh, uh, both in protein and RNA, we wanted to look at what would be the consequences of that. So, uh, so here is a, 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 the, that same type of plot, uh, a principal component analysis, uh, where we uh, are specifically, we, we included all species, but we are only looking at genes that are identified as GATA3 regulated within humans. So when we look at a principal component analysis, uh, including only this, uh, uh, the genes that I, I mentioned that are GATA3 regulated, we can see that uh, humans uh, are uh, clearly uh, um, separated from the other uh, non-human primate species. Now, what happens when we now uh, uh, plot human cells that in which we have decreased expression of GATA3? So look at uh, what happens now. The, the black symbols change their uh, position in principal component analysis, especially in principal component analysis uh, two, so the y-axis, uh, to a, a location that is more uh, uh, similar to where bonobos and chimps, uh, non-human primates, are located. And another way to visualize that is to uh, uh, plot the same values that would be that are plotted on the PCA. Those are called uh, eigenvalues, and we uh, and, and show them separately what ha what is happening on, on PC one, uh, which is the y x, and PC two. Sorry, PC one, which is the x uh, axis, and PC two, which is the y x. So while PC one, that is not much change. So the black box plot uh, are the cells that have been treated with SH against GATA3. So decreasing GATA3 doesn't change the profile uh, much. Uh, um, what, when you look in PC2, what you see is uh, there is a clear decrease of uh, the box plot that is related to uh, SH uh, uh, that was treated with SH GATA3. And now it's comparable uh, with uh, chimpanzees and bonobos compared to where it was before GATA3 treatment. And that we also wanted to show some examples of human-specific expression patterns that are uh, expressed more similar in non-human primate samples after treatment with SH-GATA3. So SH-GATA3 uh, uh, is able to change expression of some of the genes. The lack of GATA3 changed the expression of some of genes to a more similar expression to what you see in non-human primates. And here's an example of uh, TMEM260 uh, and uh, CT and NAL1, uh, where treatment with SH uh, GATA3 uh, changes the expression of the genes to more similar to the levels that are expressed in non-human primates. And we have also other examples of genes that shift uh, that shift in human expression to a more pen-like state after uh, knockdown. So we, we, with this, with those experiments, we um, are suggesting that GATA3 regulates a component of the transcription that distinguishes human neurons from pen neurons. Uh, our other question were, was, would that, uh, now that we can, we notice that there is a change do we have, uh, do we see any uh, differences in the physiological maturity uh, rate in human neurons? And that uh, we have uh, to remind us, we have seen what we have seen before is that a protracted development 
uh, maturation in human neurons. So human neurons here in green uh, are delayed uh, uh, maturation compared to chimpanzees and bonobos. We have shown that uh, before. Uh, and what we um, uh, looked at, we're looking here is the same parameters, which is the mean firing rate, as well as uh, bursts, which are indicatives, indicators of neuronal maturity. And when we look here at the uh, uh, red uh, squares uh, that I'm highlighting, you can see humans treated with, uh, human neurons treated with SH against GATA3 uh, compared to untreated or, or humans treated with uh, SH control. You see that there is an increase in uh, uh, activity in those neurons. And we can uh, see a plot here showing uh, in black an increased activity for both uh, uh, parameters of the mean firing rate as well as number of neuronal births, both parameters that indicate neuronal maturity. So the absence removing GATA3 speeds up the maturation of human neurons. So GATA3 presence acts to delay the rate of maturity of spontaneous action potentials. And we think that uh, uh, this is a key aspect of human uh, neoteny. So GATA3 is involved in uh, that process. So uh, to summarize uh, and conclude, I hope uh, uh, you saw evidence that GATA3 is uniquely upregulated in human neurons in comparison to other non-human primates. I hope you also um, understood that GATA3 is bound to genes that display human-specific dynamics. GATA3 binding sites are under positive selective pressure in human neurons. GATA3 regulates a component of transcription that distinguished human neurons from PAN, and GATA3 acts to delay the maturity of spontaneous action potentials, and that's a key aspect of human neoteny. And to conclude, we think that our findings underscore the importance of identifying how human-specific gene regulation is brought into an already functional transcriptional network of an organism, potentially through the coevolution of transcription factor binding sites. So the, that, uh, the idea that if you can, you can still keep the same uh, uh, regulations, but if you change the binding sites, or you have new binding sites, you can, uh, you're able to change um, important aspects of neuronal maturation. And with that, I would like to uh, acknowledge our collaborators, uh, Rusty Gage from the Salk Institute, Katerina Simendiferi uh, from UCSD, uh, and uh, people that were more directly involved in, with this work. Um, Sarah Linker is the lead author. Renata Santos are also, also very uh, involved. Uh, and we also had uh, support from Inigo Narvaisa, Mayan Wang, Amandeep Sharma, Anna Mendes, Ruth Opner, and Lynn Moore. And thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.